Shall we open God's Word? I'm excited about talking to you about this today because I just think we can sit in and enjoy Jesus together. Who thinks that'd be cool? Come on, let's pray. Father, open our hearts, open our minds, open the eyes of our understanding, we pray. Shape us, Lord. When we leave here today, let us be more alive than we've ever been before, more human than we've ever been before, closer to you than we've ever been before in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen and amen. Listen, there are weird people in the world called, called connoisseurs. And connoisseurs, like connoisseurs don't do stuff the way everybody else does it, right? Now, some of you people, you make your morning cup of tea and you grab, you boil the kettle at 150 degrees Celsius. You grab a a, a Lipton's, you jiggle it in the bag, you add some milk and two sugars and you scull it down, okay? But there are tea connoisseurs out there and their process is completely different to that. They, They can tell you the region of the world the tea leaves come from. They can taste in the cup um, uh, the, 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 the optimal temperature that the water was boiled at. They do. They do. I've, I've done a, a, a tea appreciation course on the border of India and Nepal in Darjeeling, and I was amazed at what the tea connoisseurs up there know about tea. It's incredible. They roll the leaves. They ferment the leaves. Sometimes they smoke them, not like this, but like with, like you know, um, food. they smoke and all sorts of stuff up there, especially the backpackers, um, and they, 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 they process it, and you can taste in the cup the mode of process. And when they drink it, they don't just like quickly drink it down because they need that caffeine hit like many of us. They, they, um, they stop and they coat their palate and they enjoy every, everything about it. Now, there are coffee connoisseurs. I was talking to uh, our friend Arthur Cooper before church this morning, and he was telling me how he got this special coffee from Hawaii, and, and it's nuanced. Like, there's a certain way you've got to make that coffee because it doesn't taste good if you don't do it the right way. But the connoisseur, my friend, the connoisseur, how do you say connoisseur in French, Emma? Connoisseur. See, the French can't even get their own word for connoisseur. Um, are you, you, the, the, the way, like they, they, they coffee. Yes, they, um, they, they, they prepare it just the right way. They know the grind. They know which apparatus must be used to prepare the coffee. And then they can taste it. They can tell you the soil it's grown in. I've met a wine connoisseur, and, a, and that person can sip a glass of red wine and tell you the year it was made, can tell you which region of the world the grapes were grown in. I mean, get a hobby, hey. Um, connoisseurs, you know, connoisseurs, they, they roil around. Whatever they're tasting, they don't rush it. They understand that part of the joy is just sitting in and tasting, coding the palate, uh, uh, existing in the nuances of it. That's pretty cool, isn't it? You know, I reckon that's how you read the Bible. That's a terrible response for what was built up in my mind to be a good observation from you. Connoisseurs. Con- now, that's how you read the Bible. You do. You royal it around. Now, now, that's how you think about Jesus. You royal the ideas around in heart and mind and coat your palate. You, you sit in it. You don't rush stuff with Jesus. You know, we, want to, we live in a, the microwave pie era where everything's a minute and 45 max before it's all done, okay? But look, you know, but uh, the true foodies in there know there's something to be said for winter slow-cooked dishes. Why are you looking at me like a goldfish looks at a new bowl? Connoisseurs. Is it all right if we sit in some stuff about Jesus this morning? And uh, you might not learn something new. You might not even find it funny or interesting. But wouldn't it be good if we said, whatever we're here to do, we're here to sit in God's Word and sit with our spiritual antenna up and enjoy being in Jesus together this morning. Is that okay? A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Father's Day and uh, we circulated this graphic, which is 
The four archetypes that a wise human is called to live into. These four archetypes, although because of the nuances of the English language, I have to use some gendered terms, but in reality, they don't need to be gendered terms. These four archetypes really represent, as cultural anthropologists have told us, and there's an extensive body of literature on this fact, that every culture from five minutes ago to 5,000 years ago, 500 years ago, Western culture, Eastern culture, from every continent and landmass of the world, every culture in the myths they tell, the epic stories they tell, and the ideal portrait of what it means to be a human being, fully alive, living a flourishing life, that that person can be described in four faces, four archetypes, four pictures, if you will, and that a truly wise person understands these four archetypes, these four images, these visceral statements that, that, that say so many things, a picture being worth a thousand words. And that a wise person understands that wisdom is to live at the centre of these archetypes and have them all coalesce inside us as though I were the chairman of a board inside my own heart and mind. And the four archetypes are the king, the warrior, the seer and the lover. They're good, aren't they? How many people like the word seer? I love it. Uh, the word prophet just doesn't capture as much as the Hebrew word nabi, seer. The interpretation of that word seer is a prophet would just make you think, oh, they just say stuff. But a seer is about seeing stuff. Lover, the heart on fire. So we circulated this graphic and we actually gave it to you on a postcard if you wanted a copy of it. And uh, on the back of it, it has this, the description of what each of those archetypes is. And they're very, 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 very important. Now, Pastor Janet Dales, if people wanted to get a copy of that postcard, they could have that again today, couldn't they? It's at the hub. There you go. She's such a mind reader. She came to me during worship and said, the Lord's put on my heart to make the card available. She didn't say it that way. She said, where are the cards? But I knew what you meant, Janet. I knew what you meant. The king, the warrior, the seer and the lover. Now, girls, if you want to think queen instead of king, that's completely fine. But in the metaphorical uh, you know, analogy of the first century world, to say the word king actually meant something different than even saying the word queen. So, so king captures something, and girls, you can be a king, no worries. Now, who doesn't like being a king if you're a girl? We can do group therapy because I have to be the bride of Christ. All right? And I don't, you know, I don't trip over my veil on that one. Have a look at these four traits. Everything in the archetype of the king that a wise person is called to live at the centre of to coalesce these sometimes strong tendencies and visceral impetuses that we have. Sometimes they're compelling energies within us. Sometimes they're competing energies within us. But the wise person says, I, I, I restrain the overuse of any one of them. I restrain the shadow use of any one of them. And what I do is I balance out living into all four of these archetypes. The king, the life giver who brings order. The warrior, the conqueror who uses their strength to protect and serve. The seer, the flame of God, the seeker of mysteries. And the lover which although sadly our society sexualizes the image of the lover, it's so much more than that. It's because there's a lover that there's sexuality. It's not because there's sexuality that there's a lover. The lover is about a human being fully alive, their heart on fire, awake to life and love, pouring into others, generative in all creativity and love and enthusiastic and connection deeply. I mean, that sounds pretty good, don't you think? Yeah. Come on, man. Do, do you want to do, 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 do live like mashed potato life? Or do you want to like, you know, sprinkle a little bit of chili some truffles that pigs dug up, and some, you know, what? What's your favourite spices? Paul, Sam, what's your favourite spice? Salt, exactly, yes. 
Well, you know, interestingly, uh, as we talked about this a few weeks ago, we looked at the life of King David and how King David evidences and embodies in the narratives of his life. And in fact, all narratives of every human in Scripture, they will fit into one of these archetypes. It's a story that, that, that reflects back to us, holding a mirror up to us, the way a human being lives. And then the story will be an affirmation of that. Look at what a great king David was when he was a good king. David was a king with a crown right in the middle of his forehead. And when he was good, he was very, very good. But when he was bad, he was horrid. You, you haven't heard? Okay, we're moving on. We're moving on. You reckon it for everyone, guys. And David sometimes lived out wonderfully into the archetypes of the king and the warrior and the seer and the lover, but also he had very broken expressions of it, didn't he? He certainly made a dog's breakfast of some of these. Which brings us to our King Jesus. Jesus, the one who evidences for us the life of the human being fully alive. So much so that Paul said of him in Colossians chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know what God's like, Jesus is it. And he is called the Son of Man all the way through the Gospels, the most popular title for Jesus, Son of Man. You know what Son of Man means? Son of Man is a, is a kingly messianic title. Where, you, where, where this divine being would come, it comes from Daniel chapter 7 in the ancient world, where this divine being would come, and on the one hand, the divine being would represent all of the human race and sum up everything that is good in the human race. And on the other hand, everything of God and be the exact in-between meeting point of humanity in heaven. And that's what you see. This, this son of man in, in, in the book of Daniel comes and sits on the throne of heaven and receives the worship of the nations. And then Jesus, when he talked about himself in the Gospels, the most common way he refers to himself is the Son of Man. He's telling us that he is that meeting point. He's the meeting point representing all of humanity on the one hand, but on the other hand, the meeting point that represents all that is God. So he, he, he represents humanity to God and God to humanity. He's the exact meeting point, the overlap of heaven and earth. And what that means is everything we need to know about God, we find in looking at Jesus. But everything we need to know about being a human being fully alive, we are encouraged into by following Jesus. And it's amazing. In Jesus, we know what we need to know about humanity, and we know what we need to know about divinity. And would it surprise you then that Jesus is the only historical character and certainly the only literary person where we find all of these four images of a human being fully alive coalescing perfectly in one person. That is, that he embodies all of them well in significant ways and does not live out of the shadow of any one of them or affect a broken expression. Well. If it was just that easy to say, we could finish and go home now. All those in favour? Not game to say it and hurt my feelings in case I run back up to Darwin again this week. <laughs> Here's the thing about Jesus, though. Jesus takes these archetypes and in the moment that he lives into them, he also turns them upside down. And we take a look back and we say, Jesus has turned everything upside down. And then we realise, now it's the right way round. And he lives into them. Jesus lives as the king, the warrior, the seer, and the lover. But look how Jesus embodies these things. As a king, Jesus' crown is made of thorns. As a king, Jesus' throne is a cross on which he dies. As a warrior, Jesus is a lion that's a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. As a lover, Jesus is a bridegroom. That's how he's described to us in a number of ways in Scripture. But he's also a banqueter. Imagine, if you will, the 
propensity of feasting that Jesus has in the New Testament. Are you with me? He's the bridegroom and the banqueter. And as the seer, Jesus is both prophet, like God promised Moses, I'll raise up one even greater than you, Moses. He's a guide. He's the way. But he's not just the prophet. He's not just the guide. He's not just the way. He is also the spirit sender. That is, Jesus as the flame of God lives as the flame of God so that the flame of God could also be sent into our life as well. Jesus in his life, and it'll take you many, many years to, like a connoisseur, identify all the nuances of what we're talking about. But those of you who've been on the journey a little while, you'll understand, yeah, you can really sit and swizzle this around in your mouth for a while, can't you? Let's quickly talk about Jesus the King. Jesus the King is a life giver. He's the blesser, the one who blesses others, the one who brings order to the chaos, the one who rules and reigns. And what I've done is I've put each of those characteristics from our previous slide up up onto the screen. And then what I've done is I've just made a list of a a quick light brainstorm of how each of those images is reflected in a narrative in the life of Jesus. And what you could do if you wanted to check it out later is you could maybe look at that or you can get on our YouTube video and steal the slides off the screen. That's always the easiest way I find. Um, But but you do what you want. But have a look at the life of Jesus and, and the way Jesus lives out being the king of God's kingdom. We've got to be careful how we think of it, don't we? Because Jesus is king, but Jesus is unlike any other king that we have ever known, heard about, or conceived of. Jesus' favourite sermon, it's the one summarised in every single one of the Gospels. His favourite topic to talk about was the kingdom of God. And the Gospel writers, especially the Synoptic Gospels, they describe Jesus' main message not as, oh, God wants to forgive you, although forgiveness was involved, and not of God's love, although God's love was involved. But what Jesus devotes most textual space to is an explication of this sermon, the time is come, the kingdom of God is here. The rule and reign, the kingship, the kinghood, the kingness of God has been unleashed back to humanity, into the cosmos in the ministry of Jesus. I mean, that's exciting, guys. But when we say the word king, we have all sorts of ideas about what a king is. All sorts of ideas. And Jesus came to show us how wrong our ideas are because this is the type of king that Jesus is. We all know a king who smites their enemies. That's what the Caesar of Rome did. And that's what Herod was doing in the first century world where Jesus lived and walked and talked and taught. And Jesus says, I'm not a king like any other king you know. Because my crown is a suffering one of thorns which lives to pour out to lift you up. My throne is a cross and instead of smiting my enemies, I stretch out my hands and I die for them in sacrificial, others-centred love. Think about the phrase, sacrificial, other-centred love. Almost every king we could be aware of operates out of self-centred, self-love. In literature, they're the villains, aren't they? Robin Hood and Little John running through the forest. Evil Prince John usurping the throne. Oh, and what's the longing and yearning of everybody in the narrative? That good King Richard the Lionheart would come. Because the selfish usurper, the snivelling, weakling prince that's taken over unjustly and grinding our lives into pulp. (laughs) the villain. Jesus is a king unlike any other king that we've ever seen. His disciples didn't always get this in Luke chapter 22. Jesus has to educate them about what he's up to and and why he's up to what he's up to. Listen to what he says. Listen to what Luke tells us. A dispute arose among them 
as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. You know, they're hanging out with Jesus, so it's a good question, isn't it? Hey, Jesus, which one of us is kind of, uh, you know, better? Which one of us is, you know, I know we're all equal, but which one of us is more equal than others, in the words of George Orwell? Well, Jesus, Jesus says this, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. Those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater than the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? See how Jesus takes the, 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 the archetype of ruler and turns it on its head? I'm not here to be blessed by your worship. I'm here to bless you. I'm not here to have you conquer on my behalf. I'm here to conquer on your behalf. It's an incredible image, isn't it? You recognize the sister statement in the story from Matthew chapter 20. And Jesus calls them together. You know the rules of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant in the kingdom of God. The way up is actually the way down. Turns it on its head. He's a king, but he's like no king we've ever met before, look what he says in verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is a king. Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. Jesus is unleashing the kingdom of God. But man, if you think about that phrase, you better be careful because this good, loving, just, beautiful rule and reign of God wants to turn the world upside down and represent itself in sacrificial, other-centered love that doesn't demand from you, but pours into you. And we're called to worship that God. I mean, what a God to serve. And we're called to reflect that God as well. And everything we see in Jesus, we embrace that as revelation of what God is like. And then we leave our worship place. We leave our reflection place. And we say, then if Jesus is like that, I'm supposed to also be like that. Everyone used to say of my daughter Lily that she looks like me. Poor kid. She gets her beard from her mother, but the rest, it's like me. It's like me. Everywhere we go, especially now because we've been in Alice Springs for seven years, so a lot of people haven't seen us in a while. But everywhere we go, when we go, people who haven't seen, they, they'll look at Lily and go, you are Ben Teefy's daughter, false show. It's like father, like daughter. How many people in here look like mum and dad? Just give us a good look. Yes, Robin, good. Well, you know, everywhere we're supposed to go, People are supposed to interface with you and I. And they're supposed to go, hang on a minute. There's something about you. There's something about you that makes me think I'm possibly looking at your father when I look into your eyes. Remember Amy Grant's famous song? I only know the title. I've never heard it. It's called In My Father's Eyes. Yvette can sing it to us one day. There's something like that. We're supposed to live like that. Jesus is the warrior. Have a look at the qualities of the warrior. Jesus is the one who conquers, he conquers sin. But how Jesus uses his power is how all the warriors of epic myth and all the warriors of storied law use their power, never for selfish gain, never as a bully, never as a tyrant, always to protect and serve. The Japanese, for their quintessential way of describing a warrior, use the word budo as the way of the warrior. And literally, the Japanese characters that make up that word mean the one who protects and serves. The characters protect and serve are built into the idea of the warrior. 
The great C.S. Lewis said, of course, that's in there because God has imprinted himself on every culture and every story we tell represents the yearnings for the God that we really truly seek beneath it all. And every single myth, every single archetype, every single story reaches down inside our longings and our yearnings and our heartstrings and pulls them and plucks them so that when we encounter the story of the gospel, we would recognize what it is our culture yearns for. It's a pretty powerful thought, isn't it? C.S. Lewis called it the myth that became fact. Jesus is the warrior. But you know, Jesus is not like any warrior you've ever met because he is the lion who has conquered as the lamb who was slain. We live in a world that loves lions, friends. On the face of the earth today is a lot of expression of Christianity that's very lion-esque. Sadly, Christians are sometimes known for bearing fangs and extending claws more than they are known for the true vision of where that image comes from. In Revelation, one of my favourite books, if you're ever really being punished by God for your sins, I'm going to preach a whole series on Revelation. Um, in Revelation, John is transported from his now reality into a heavenly reality, not just a future reality, you understand, but into the now reality, the veil. It's what an apocalypse is. It's a removing of the veil. So John sees reality as it actually is right now in the midst of the struggles that he has. And he is transported to the throne of heaven. And listen to, to this wonderful tale, which is very mysterious, and we don't have time to cover all the details, but we can look at one major thing from it today. Revelation chapter 5. Listen to what it says. And then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, this is in heaven, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? You have to understand the scroll is the plan. The scroll is the architecture. The scroll is, is the revelation of God's blueprint for how the universe needs to work. And of course, there's no person. There's no person. There's no angelic being. There's no one in heaven in John's vision. No one can crack the code of history. No one can crack the code of the cosmos. No one can understand how's it all supposed to work and fit together. No one can understand. And that's tragic, isn't it? It's tragic when the problems at the deepest heart of the cosmos cannot be solved and healed. It's tragic. And so John responds to the tragedy in the most appropriate way. He says, but no one in heaven on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept. Just leave my punchline for me, mate. Yeah. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or even look inside. No one could do that heavy lifting. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See, everybody say see. John's direction is being attended to through the perception of his vision. See, he's being told, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Let me get back to it. Look, don't weep. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed. Everybody say triumphed. A, a, a military term. He's won, he's conquered, he's triumphed. And he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Look, the lion, baby. The lion has won. The lion, strong in tooth and claw, he has won. Oh, well, okay. Verse six. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. And the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I know it's weird. We do not have time to get into the interpretation of that. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat down on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb. And each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. 
And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased from God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests of our God and they will reign on the earth. You know, I never read that passage without getting emotional. Do you understand that, that, that you know, I, I love a dollar for every time I've seen a Christian get a lion tattoo on their arm with this scripture, but I've never seen someone that has a lamb tattoo. And it's unfortunate because it betrays a problem with our theology in the modern world where what we really want is the lion, but what we get is the lamb. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah has, con- has conquered. I turned, I see a lamb that was slain. We would all understand a warrior that smites their enemies, but try to understand one that stretches out his arms and dies for them. Until we live in that tension and that marinates our soul, we do not know Christ, church. When we're known to be lions instead of lambs, we do not know Christ, church. He's a warrior, but he's unlike a warrior we've ever seen because he overcomes with his blood, not by shedding yours. He's a seer. A seer. He's the flame of God. He's the seeker of mysteries, the pursuer of knowledge, the speaker of truth, the perceiver of new ways so new that he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He calls out injustice and through his sheer spiritual awareness guides us on the path. Jesus is a seer. He is more than a seer because he's the great I am. He's the one greater than Moses, according to the Hebrews. According to John, he's the Logos, the Word of God that was there in the beginning. And according to him, he's the Spirit sender. Jesus, as the great seer, the flame of God, is a prophet, a guide, the very Word of God, but he is the Spirit sender as well, which means we don't just stand back and observe the Spirit in Jesus. We fall at our feet and we follow Jesus, and he says, then I'll send the flame of God to you. I'll send the Spirit of God to you as well. We're invited on the one hand to wonder. We're invited to worship but we are invited to be transformed, to be a king like he's a king, to be a warrior like he's a warrior, to be a seer the way he is a seer. We are guided. Hebrews captures it beautifully in chapter one. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various places. He spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken by his son. Ancestors, prophets, got a message about God and delivered it to people. Jesus is the message. And he's the sender of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, he's describing his imminent departure to his 12 disciples. He's describing their life. He says this, if you love me, keep my commands. I mean... Read John's Gospel when you understand what he means when he says, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate. The old translation you say, another comfort, a beautiful word. And he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. I will not, this is just such a beautiful promise of Jesus. I will not leave you as orphans. 
I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. And because I live, you will also live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. I mean, if you want to, you know, ever confuse yourself, just sit in the complexities of Christian theology. But the beauty and the simplicity is this, Jesus as the flame of God wants your life to be set on fire for God, who can give me an amen in Jesus' name. John the Baptist looked at Jesus and he said, hey guys, I, I, I baptise you with water, but one who's coming after me is greater than me, so greater than me, I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. And he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Understand the invitation? Not just to, oh, cool, Jesus is special. He's the flame of God. No, but because he's the flame of God, you're invited to yield your life to his wonderful kingship and you are invited yourself into burning bright for God. And we can know the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Then we can operate not in our own strength. We can live in connection with the divine. The deepest hungers of our hearts can be met by the invisible God, the creator of the universe. We're all invited into it. There's no caste system. There's no special people. Oh, you're a pastor, so you're special. Trust me, I know lots of pastors. They're not that special. I am one. They're not that special. The flame of God. Jesus is a lover. He's a lover. And as the lover, he is the human that lives out for us what it truly means to pour out to others, to love, to protect to use strength to the betterment of all. Jesus is the one whose heart is on fire. He's fully awake to life and love. So fully awake to life and love is Jesus that he says, I have come that you would also have life to the full, that you would be fully awake, that that you'd live with a heart on fire, that you would live impassioned. He lives deeply. He pours into others. He's creative, he's enthusiastic, he connects to others. Think about Jesus as the lover. Some of the most famous statements now in Western culture are poetic aphorisms that Jesus created. It is better to give than... You know, people who don't even know Christ probably know that saying. Such an influential poet was Jesus Christ. Before you look at the speck in your brother's eye, you better look at the... Blessed are the... Yeah, and there's nine to choose from, so you choose your favourite one. <laughs> See, Jesus, was a, his heart was fully alive. And, and, and as a lover, his creative endeavours were given to lift people and move them beyond where he found them. And to this day, our culture is shaped by his poetic nature because the lover in him communicated and reaches across time and space and connects deeply with our hearts. It's amazing, isn't it? He's a lover. Jesus shows he's the lover when he comes as the bridegroom in the book of Revelation. Jesus shows he's the lover when he's known in the Gospels for feasting with, okay, you ready for it? Tax collectors and sinners. You know, that statement has a lot more power around July. He was known for feasting. And why was it such a controversy that Jesus would feast? I'll tell you why. Because in the first century world, to eat a meal with someone is to to say, let's join lives together. 
Jesus as the lover. What is his main activity? Feasting, fellowshipping, forgiving with sinners. Why? I want to join lives with you because my love will heal you. My goodness will flow into you. If you love me, keep my commandments. This is how we people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. You better believe Jesus is the lover. Jesus' whole energetic activity was others-centered love, not self-centered love, which, by the way, we call that lust. Jesus is the lover. He's the bridegroom and he's the banqueter. What a God. He's a king, he's a warrior, he's a seer and he's a lover. But as a king, his throne is a cross and his crown is thorned. As a warrior, he is the lion, but he's the lion who's the lamb that was slain. Pours himself out in sacrificial love. As the seer, he's... As the lover, he's the banqueter and he's the bridegroom. As the seer, he's the prophet and the sender of the spirit. That is the Jesus we follow, friends. I was powerfully moved in the last couple of weeks preaching at a conference in Queensland. And uh, if you're a regular in this church, you probably know me. So if you're a visitor, just get to know me before you judge what I'm about to say because I'm already crazy. Um, I was about to speak at this conference and I got up, they just introduced me and so I, I went to speak and I looked over and, and just sitting, you know, sort of maybe the third or fourth row back on my right, there, there was a young woman there, she was standing on her own and, and you know, as I'm, everyone's looking at me, waiting for me to say something and I look at her and the minute I locked eyes on her, God showed me something about her. He whispered something into my spirit. This is the presence of God, the King, who wants to help her recover from her chaos. This is the presence of Jesus, the warrior, who wants to overcome her sin and darkness. The presence of Jesus, the seer, who as the flame of God wants to reveal secrets to her and take her deeper into her connection with God. And Jesus, the lover, that the way he wants to do that is he wants to heal her and pour his goodness all over her in other-centered love and bring her where she needs to be in connection with God and with other people. (laughs) Those things all coalesced in one moment. God said to me, Isaiah 61, I want to give her beauty for ashes. I want to give her the oil of joy for mourning. And I want her to put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. So I said to her, hey, what, what's your name up there? She, you know, we did that thing and she told me her name. I said, look, I don't want to embarrass you, especially in a room like this. But as I just stood there, God just showed me something and I have to tell you, your season of mourning is over. Your season of mourning is over. God wants to give you beauty for ashes now. Whatever's been going on, it's done. God wants to give you a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. God wants to pour out upon your life and whatever's been going on, I'm declaring to you today in Jesus' name, that season is over. It's a new day. And then I said to her, and I'm sorry to say it like this because it sounds kind of weird, but I just feel like God wants to give you a big hug and I'm not going to do that. So I said, there's a bunch of girls sitting around here. Could you just give her a hug? Just go and put your arms around her and then we'll pray. And the whole conference turned and prayed for that young woman. There was snot and mascara everywhere everywhere it is you know when God does stuff like this it's only because the presence of the seer in us sometimes just reveals stuff to us and only ever to build and love see it's got to be held in tension we're not just a warrior who wants to overcome stuff we're lovers because he's a lover so he's gentle and he's kind and everything he wants to do lifts and pours in and blesses and builds up other people there was someone sitting at the very back row on my left-hand side, no aspersions to anyone up the back row today. <laughs> and uh, I'm thinking, I just want to preach, but God keeps showing me things. 
and would be prudent for me to be responsible with that moment. So as I locked eyes with this guy, he's quite a muscular young fellow, and God said to me, a spiritual Samson. And I began to talk and God showed me, you, my friend, are a spiritual Samson. And Samson, he, 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 God would come upon him and give him great strength, but the tragedy of his tale is he never used that strength to serve the people of God and the mission of God. He always used his strength to serve himself. Actually, Samson's tale is not a hero story, friends. It is a tragic cautionary tale of what not to do when you have the power of God in your life. And I'm saying this guy, I'm not accusing you of anything, but God's just showing me you're a spiritual Samson. And, and draw into the strength that God would give you, not just your natural strengths. And do not live by your own sight. All the way through the Samson story, it says Samson went down and he saw, and he saw this, and he saw her, and he saw that. And all the way through the story, it accentuates Samson living by his appetites, spurred by his vision. What he saw hijacked his life. He saw Delilah and she was beautiful and boom, he was sidetracked. So God's showing my heart. Tell him, you're a spiritual Samson, my friend, and it's a cautionary tale. Only use your strength that God gives you for the service of God. And secondly, I'm not accusing you, bro, but watch out for Delilah. Watch out for Delilah. Whatever Delilah is to you, and actually I was a bit worried about saying this to him, so I said, and look, like if you've got a girlfriend or a wife or something, it doesn't automatically mean she's Delilah. I'm not calling her Delilah, so I'm trying to, you know, like give wise, wise um, exclamations. <laughs> I said, just watch out for Delilah. There's something that's going to grind you down the day by day by day by day temptation until you're in Samson's shoes. He couldn't bear it anymore and he gave in. When he gave in, he got a haircut. When he got a haircut, the Philistines came and they dug out his eyeballs. If you live by your sight, it will ultimately cost you vision. So I said, I'm not accusing you, bro. I just feel like God wants to encourage you. Get strong in God. And whatever might be on the wings tempting you, it's a Delilah, it's a Delilah. Just watch out for it. Be wise, be warned. Okay, everybody, we prayed for him. We had a great time the rest of the time. And then at the end of that night, as everything was being packed up, him and her both came out to see me. She started first and she said, Pastor Ben, why did you say that to me? I said, I'm sorry. I just, God showed me and I told you what God said. <laughs> she said, you couldn't have known this. No one did. I drove, we were an hour and a half north of Brisbane. She said, I drove an hour and a half north by myself this morning. This is my second time I've ever been at a church thing. I'm not a church person. It's not my bag. I've got a couple of friends who are part of this ministry. They invited me to this conference. I didn't want to come but I have been sad and broken and depressed for years. She said, as I drove to this conference this morning, I was saying, God, if you're real, I just want this feeling of mourning to be over in my life. She said, I, you couldn't have known Pastor Ben, but I was driving up and I said, God, if you're real, I just need a hug from you today. See, that's the spirit of the lover drawing out and reaching to her. Man, I'm, we, we all had mascara. It's not everywhere after she said that to me. It's only when you've been really broken that you understand the special nature of the one who will go after the one in the midst of the 99. Old Samson comes out, bit of a muscular beefcake. He says, I need you to pray for me. I said, okay, that's good. At least you're not going to choke me. He said, I, I, uh, I've been a Christian for a while, but I've had this girlfriend and I've been in and out with her, in and out with her, in and out with her. And, and we see each other for a few months. 
And then I break up with her and I start coming back to church. And then she might call me or text me and I just can't control myself. So I go back to her and, and, and it always takes me out of the church. It always takes me out of the kingdom and it always takes me out of God's plan for my life. And he said, I was praying in worship and God spoke to me and said, that's a Delilah in your life. You've got to get rid of it. You've got to cut off that relationship. And so he said, Pastor Ben, thanks very much. You could have come in here today with all sorts of questions. And I wish I could get up here and do the Oprah Winfrey. You get a word and you get a word and you get a word and you get a word. And I don't know why God does it in some seasons and does it in others, but I've got a personal commitment and that is I never do it out of pressure or performance. If I don't feel a conviction, God is asking me to say it to someone. I will never say it just because I think you have to. You know? So that's why I'm not going to do it for you today. <laughs> but here's the deal. Um, not a single one of us truly needs someone to stand up and point us out in a crowd because every single one of us can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Every single one of us can hear God's voice. Every single one of us. Every single one of us can yield to the King who is a warrior, who is the flame of God, who is an incredible lover of people. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes all over this room today? I pray for you. I pray the faces of Jesus would live inside you. I pray you would cultivate the wisdom of living out those four faces. Let them coalesce inside you under his presence and power. As you read his word, let each of those faces be revealed to you and challenge you and show you and shape you. Oh man, I, play, I pray for you. I pray Jesus, the King of the kingdom, would rule over your chaos and sort it out and bring blessing to your life. I pray, Jesus the warrior, that, that his conquering, overcoming death on the cross would work against the darkness and the sin and the activity of evil inside you. Everything the enemy's planned, I pray the cross of Calvary against it in Jesus' name. I pray the lion of the tribe of Judah that is the lamb slain would live inside you, friend. I pray your heart would be open and that you would live into the great seer, the flame of God. I pray God's Holy Spirit would be welcome and, and be sought after in your life. I pray every day that you would wake up and say, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I want to be obedient to it. I pray every day would be a Pentecost for you, friend. I pray every day you would live with your heart on fire, with the flame of God, that the seer in him would become the seer in you, that God would help you seek him, connect to him, know mysteries, reveal truths, especially from his word. I pray you'd be filled by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray the great lover would be real to you. In the words of that great song, the lover of our soul, that Jesus transforming modus operandi, radical others-centered love, that's what he does. And I pray it would sweep you up and heal you and bless you and lift your life and woo you. But I pray you channel it, friend. I pray you wouldn't keep it to yourself. I pray you'd have it, but I pray you'd give it away. Give it away to a broken world. Give it away to the lonely. Give it away to the lost. Come on, let's be a church that's known to look and taste and feel like Jesus. In Jesus' name, I pray. I pray for our church. I pray for our church here. I pray for our church in Darwin too. 
God love you friends for being up there. I, I, I pray the goodness of God would flow through us and that when we are old, we would look back and say, look what God did because we embodied who Jesus is. God, give us fruit as a church, fruit down our road, fruit around our world, the fruit of life change, the fruit of salvations, the fruit of revival, Father, in Jesus' name. But give our heart a passion for you, Christ. Make us hungry, humble, passionate, inspired. Fill us with wonder. Fill us with wonder. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.